Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles and take, take and turn to Joshua chapter 7 as we continue to make our way through this book. Title of today's message is Breaking Faith. Breaking Faith. Let me ask you, how many of you have heard of the old saying, one bad or one bad or rotten apple spoils the whole bunch? Have you heard that? Yeah, it's a pretty uh, famous proverb. It's a proverb that warns that it only takes one person, one thing, one element, etc., to ruin the entire group or, or situation. It refers to the fact that a rotting apple can cause the other apples in close proximity to begin to rot as well. As we look at the conquest of Jericho last week, God demonstrated his judgment on sin through the extermination of Jericho and its entire population, as well as his mercy as he rescued Rahab and her family from his wrath. Now, as we come to Joshua 7 today, Joshua now is setting his face, uh, his sights on, on the neighboring city of Ai. However, the people are in for a rude awakening as they suffer humiliating defeat due to the sin of one of its own, one of their own. So with that, Joshua 7, you're there. Let's look at verse 1. It'll be here on the monitor, but the rest will not. But just join with us in verse 1. The writer writes, but the people of Israel broke faith. You might want to circle that or underline that in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi and of Zerah of the tribe of Judah took some of the devoted things and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Father, what strong words. Father, that's something I pray that we never do is break faith. But yet, we're human. Even, even as believers, there's sin that still resides within our minds and our hearts that causes us to be unfaithful. But yet we're also thankful that your wrath, your anger no longer burns against your children, but it does against an unholy world that has rejected you. Give us wisdom as we read through the story of Achan. Again, a, a story that seems like, a, you know, there's a story or a fable written some a uh, long time ago in a land far away from people far removed from us. But Father, there is the gospel here for us. This is profitable to teach us, to train us, to correct us, to reprove us. So Father, let us do the, the, the exciting but difficult work at times to mine through this passage, Lord, that we may glorify you in living uh, the great commandment to love our Lord, our God, with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our neighbor as herself. Thank you for the book of Joshua. Thank you for this story. In your name we pray. Amen. We're going to give some observations. And again, because I love alliteration, I'm a Southern or Baptist, I should say, independent Baptist. You're going to see a lot of C's in this one. So first, we're going to notice the conflict. We're going to notice the conflict as the writer of Joshua points out that Achan has disobeyed, disregarded, and defied the commandment of God, the word of God. 
going back to chapter verse uh, chapter six and verse eighteen, if your Bible Joshua six eighteen, we had read earlier that God had warned them, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. Lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. So he says, be very, very careful not to take of those things. You will be tempted to, but do not. Because if you do, you'll bring trouble, not just on yourself, but he warns on the whole camp. Yahweh commanded, as we continue in that passage, that all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Everything was to be exterminated in Jericho except for those items. They were to go into the treasury of the Lord, into the tabernacle. These would then most likely have been used to be melted down and make the the various tools of worship in the tabernacle and so on and so forth. Now, when he says here that we look at this conflict, the conflict is they broke faith. To break faith means to act unfaithfully or to to act treacherously, to transgress against. This is a dangerous, rebellious act that leads to the anger of Yahweh to burn against Israel, the nation. And as we learned last week, Yahweh is a holy, righteous, and just God, and he must punish sin. What is alarming is that God's anger was just not against Achan, but as you and I read here, it's against the whole nation of Israel. Secondly, we notice the confidence of the nation. As we move to verses 2, we read that Joshua and the people were unaware of Achan's treacherous act and God's anger against them. That's important as you and I continue. Instead, they set their sights on Ai, the neighboring city of Jericho. And Joshua sends two spies to to go out and gather information, just as he did with Jericho. And so they bring back some information on their next target. And after that crushing and stunning victory at Jericho, these men are full of confidence and and state in verse 3 that they return to Joshua and they said, do not have all of the people go up. But let only about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. Hey, let, let's give a group of them a rest. We can just take up several thousand. You know, there's this city, we can take them, no, no, no doubt about it. Joshua takes their advice. It doesn't look like he goes and prays about it. He just takes their advice. And look at verse 4. So about 3,000 men went up for the people. And they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gates as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. What we see is a a devastating effect. It it seems like only 36 men died, but this is a, a great crushing defeat as they are turned and run back away from this city. What a devastating reversal of fortunes. As we read that because of this defeat, the the hearts of the people, it says, melted and became as water. Hence why I say it's a reversal of fortunes is not only are they not victorious, but suffer a great defeat, but now they are fearful and doubt just as their enemies were before. Thirdly, we read of the complaint of Joshua as he, is his, he and his people suffer a crisis of faith. 
It's not uncommon for us when we suffer a crisis of faith, when we break faith, that we begin to complain against God. Look at verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites and to destroy us? Does this not sound familiar? Did not Moses do this many times before? Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan, just stayed in the wilderness. Look on in verse 5. No, I asked verse 8, excuse me. Oh Lord, what can I say, Joshua continues in his prayer, when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land, they will now hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. We are dead, in other words. And what will you do for your great name? So he puts it back on God. God, this is your fault. Look what you're doing here. Now, what are you going to do about it? Don't we do that? Lord, look at the mess I've gotten myself. This is your fault. How are you going to get me out? Then we pray very much like Joshua does. Now, before I get to criticize Joshua here, he does do some good, positive things here in response to the anger of God. One is tearing his clothes and falling to the earth in prayer and putting dust on their head. Now, for you and I, that sounds odd, but in those days in the Near East, that was one way in which they demonstrate their mourning, their repentance, recognizing that something has gone down. When someone would pass away or when a, when a terrible event would happen, this is one way that they would show humility. He also call, calls out for the Lord for understanding because even in his complaint, he's asking for understanding what has happened here. He's basically is asking God, he's asking Yahweh, if you are breaking your promise, God, are you done with us? Are, are you breaking covenant with us? Instead of looking on the inward, he's saying, are you no longer going to prosper us? As you said, are you breaking your promise? And he also recognizes that it's the Lord's name that he's dishonored. He understands that they will be cut off, but he also says, Lord, it's your name that's to be glorified. But yet he also combines some of these good responses with the selfish refrain that was used often by Moses and the people in the wilderness, their, their parents, so to speak, or parents, uh, their parents, in which they complained it would have been better for them to stay in Egypt rather than to follow the Lord. That's what he's saying here. It would have been better that instead of crossing the River Jordan, we would have just stayed in the wilderness. We should have just made our homes there. How many times have we complained? Well, I followed you. I obeyed your word. I did what I thought you wanted me to do, but yet God isn't fulfilling his promise. I would have been better off just doing this. So fourthly, now we did the complaint. We now read of God's command. I love this. Fathers, you need to write this up. Maybe husbands or wives as well. In verse 10, he does two words. Get up. These are great forms when someone is having a pity party. Get up, God says to him. He's going to cut short Joshua's pity party. He asks him, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? What God is doing here is telling him it's time for action. In verse 11, we read Israel has sinned. Yahweh says, they have transgressed against my covenant that I commanded them. He's informing Joshua what's going on. 
They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Joshua has no, uh, did not understand that this had happened. In verse 12, Yahweh continues, Therefore the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. It's not me that's broken the covenant. It is they, and they will not be able to stand because I will not fight for them is what God is saying here. Strong words. He says, they've turned their backs before the enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. In other words, by taking devoted things, they now have become the very object of devotion, of of destruction, devoted to destruction. He says, I will be with you no more. What strong words, unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. So God gives them a way of escape. He continues then to direct them to, to order the people to consecrate themselves, meaning to once again, Israel needs to dedicate and separate themselves unto God and his holy purposes. They, they need to recognize that what they've done is sin. And he gives them this instruction in verse 14. This is going to become important later. He says, in the morning, he's speaking to the day of the defeat. He says, in the morning, therefore you shall bring near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the house of the Lord takes shall come man by man. And he who is taken with, and he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. And all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, because he has done an outrageous thing. So remember, Israel is, is divided into 12 tribes. And in those 12, those, each of those tribes in our clans, you know, kind of anybody ever watched, oh, what's that show we loved? Highlander. You know, there can only be one. You know, they're, they're clans, you know, family clans. And in those clans, then were the different families, the relatives. And so by lot, he would say, you know, they would come, you know, Benjamin, Asher and all those things. And they would throw the lot. And then God says, well, this is the one I want you to come forward. Then the clans would come and so on and so forth. So fifthly, we see then of a confrontation. So there is the command, get ready, consecrate yourself before me. Tomorrow you're all going to present yourself before me and I will show you the guilty party. So then we see the confrontation of Achan as that guilty party as we read in verse 19. Then Joshua said to Achan as they come through, my son, yes, my son, give glory to God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me what you've done. So uh, we kind of skipped that part, but, but each, each tribe comes and he chooses the tribe of Judah. Then he chooses the tribe or the clan that, that Achan belonged to. And then they grabbed that family of Achan's family came before him. I'm kind of skipping some there, but verse 19, then Joshua said to Achan as he's presented before the Lord, the one that's chosen, the one that's shown to be guilty. And Joshua says, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan, to his benefit here, answered Joshua, truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel and this is what I did. Boy, have you ever done that? That's, that's true confession. It's not just saying I'm sorry, but saying, yeah, here's what I've done. This is what I did. We'll talk a little bit more about that, but that's an important phrase there. This call to glory and praise God is not so much as a call to worship. As you and I think this, he's now going, confession, by the way, is a way in which we glorify and magnify God. But it's more so a call for Achan to be honest 
and 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 to swear an oath to 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 Achan's actions in Jericho. Tell us exactly what happened. Now, just personally, just thinking of myself, I could not even imagine what was going through Achan's mind, and as each tribe came forward to Joshua, maybe even the night before. Could you imagine the pit in his stomach? Have you ever waited knowing someone was going to catch you in something that you'd done wrong? Or you know you got trouble in school, ladies, and you know that uh, when you get home, you got to show them the report card or the letter? Or maybe your mama says, wait until your dad gets home. That pit in your stomach. Could you imagine aching all night, waiting, and then going in line? Okay, the tribe of Asher, the tribe of Benjamin. I don't know how they probably went in order. Reuben, so on and so forth. And then they get to the clans, and eventually his clan is chosen. And then eventually Achan's family is chosen. I couldn't imagine what his mind and his spirit and his emotion was going through. But Achan answers honestly and admits to his sin in taking the the items that that should have been brought into the treasure of the tabernacle. Look at with me in verse 21. Look what he says here. And I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and I took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent. He had actually dug under the ground and, and buried them. And then he says, and, and the, the silver underneath. So sixthly, then we read of the confirmation of his treachery, the confirmation of his treachery and the condemnation of him and his family. In verse 24, now we read some things that become very disturbing. And Joshua and all of Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his donkeys and his sheep and his tent and all that they had. And they brought him up to the valley of Achor. Look at verse 25. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. The punishment is harsh and quick and includes the whole congregation of the people having to be involved. Lastly, as we look and we see in verse 26 that their obedience to Yahweh in doing this, could you imagine you know, the Lord telling you, now pick up a stone and kill someone? This, this would have been difficult on their part. But it leads to the sensation of God's anger and the return of God's favor. In verse 26, they raised up over him a great heap of stones that remain to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of the place is called the Valley of Achor, which sounds like the Hebrew word trouble. You see, to inherit the land, they must submit and obey to God's word. They did that crossing the Jordan River. They, they did that in their, in their, their confrontation of, of in the conquest of Jericho, but here they did not. Trent Hunter notes that Israel's experiences the wrath of God for their disobedience and the restoration of blessings for the obedience they learned in taking out, carrying out this punishment against Achan and his family. Though you and I are not going to cover it in our study of Joshua, you can read chapter 8 to see how the rest of the story winds up. 
as the nation rebounds, conquers Ai, and recommits to the covenant and the law of God. But what I want to spend the time is trying to understand what this passage is trying to teach us. It's, it's an interesting story. You know, it might make a good TV series or a movie or, or maybe a fable or a moral, you know, uh, tale. But there's more to it. And so I want to try to understand that because it's a difficult passage. Just as last week, and it leads some, to some very tough questions, again, that you and I need to answer. Because the Old Testament is difficult for the world to understand for unbelievers. They, they do not understand why is it that, that, that this is so impactful. So the question is, what made this sin so treacherous? So he took some spoils of, from war. If you were to read chapter 8, you're going to see when they finally do conquer Ai, that God says, yeah, take some spoils. You can keep some stuff. That was, nat- that was natural. To, what's that phrase? To the victor goes the spoils. You've heard of that phrase? Well, what's wrong with, why is this so treacherous? Why does it lead to God burning with wrath? Why is it called breaking of faith? Well, turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 7. You can go back there real quickly. Joshua, you're there. Just turn back one book to Deuteronomy chapter 7. And as you look at chapter 7, we're going to go to verse 25. And what we're going to see is that even before they crossed the Jordan River, they were warned of this. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 25, they are warned the carved images of their gods, speaking of the Amorites, the the land of Canaan, you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, or take it for yourself, lest you be what? ensnared by it. You may want to underline that. That's going to be important. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. Don't deal with it. Don't want it. Don't cut off the gold and silver. And you shall not bring an abominable thing in your house and become devoted to destruction like it. So he says if you touch it, you're, you're part of it. It's part of you. You shall utterly detest and abhor it. For it is devoted to destruction. You see, what made Achan's sin so treacherous that it was breaking of faith and deserved the anger of God what is, was that he disobeyed the direct command of God not to take of any spoils from Jericho, but to put them into the treasury of the tabernacle. In essence, his disobedience led him to steal from God. That's what was so treacherous. He stole from God. That which belonged to God, he took for himself. To defy, to disregard, and disobey the word of God. Let me say it again. Think of this. This is what's happening many times. To defy, to disregard, and to disobey the word of God is to make oneself an enemy of God. And you and I have to understand that is today, without Christ, we are considered disobedient children, enemies of God. Now, that's not how we like to think of ourselves. But outside of God's saving grace, God says that his anger burns against us. So that's what made the sin so treacherous. He is taking what belongs to God. And so what's treacherous about is not the value of what he took, but the value of whom he took from. That's what's so valuable. That's what makes this sin so treacherous. 
But then the question I have to ask is why was the whole nation and then his family punished for one man's sin? Now that just seems totally out of line. That just does not seem fair. And it's a great question. And it's a difficult one that, we, that people are going to ask and we need to understand and be able to answer. Well, simply put, we have to understand that the effects of sin, even one man's sin, has a far-reaching consequence that many times you and I do not even consider. Scripture is filled with people who suffered due to the sins of others. The Egyptian warriors who drowned in the Red Sea because of Pharaoh hardening his heart and rushing into the Red Sea. You think common sense would have said, uh, something different is here, this is strange, we're not going. But all those men died that day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, remember him? He lost the opportunity to rule the kingdom of Israel due to the folly and the foolishness and the rebellion of his father. He wound up giving his life in a foolish battle that did not have to take place because God's hand was not with them. Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, was murdered by David because of David's sin. The first son of David, Bathsheba, was killed due to their sin. It's been said that sin will take you farther than you want to go. Sin will leave you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. And I believe there's probably many of you that can give testimony to that today. Because you've seen, and you maybe even today, you bear the scars, whether it's physical, emotional, mental, or spiritual, in your body. The consequences of our choices, sinful choices. Achan's sin led to the death of 36 innocent men. It led to the dishonoring of the name of the Lord. It led to the cost of his family, their lives, wiping his whole name and lineage from the face of the world. How often do we downgrade sin? We use words and call sins, oh, they're just hang-ups that I have. Well, I've just made some bad mistakes, or I have some bad habits, or I just miscalculated, or I just have some bad judgment. However, sin is a treacherous, rebellious act that David claims is a direct step of rebellion against the Creator. We saw this in our scripture reading when David says, Against you, only you have I sinned. Achan's family was most likely also included, though, because they were his accomplices. Think about it. Going back to Joshua 7.21, we read that Achan hid the spoils in the ground in his tent. From the description of what he took, he would have needed some help to carry them back to his tent from the battleground undetected. And then dig a hole to hide the goods in his home, in his tent, and then to cover it back up with a rug. Most likely, his family knew and helped with this endeavor. Then you might say, well, what about repentance and mercy? I I thought God was also that in the Old Testament. It's a good question. If God accepted Rahab and her family, who was a, a prostitute, who was not a Jew, was not a child of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then why does he give her and her family rescue? 
and relief. The Bible says nothing about Rahab's family. It says that she, by faith, but it says nothing about her family. Why does he not give Achan a chance to repent so that he and his family could receive mercy? Is not God fulfilling his promise to protect and keep his children just because of one man's sin? This just does not seem fair. At first glance, this is very compelling. However, if we go back to Joshua 7, 13, we see that Yahweh had called all of the people to consecrate themselves and he gave them a warning going back to verse 14. Look at it. He says, in the morning, therefore you shall be brought near by your tribes and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come by clans and the clan shall the Lord take come by near man by man and he who has taken the devoted thing shall be burned with fire he had told them the night before Achan spent all that day and that night with the knowledge that Yahweh was going to expose his treacherous sin he knew that there was nowhere else to go nowhere else to hide yet Achan did nothing that evening He did nothing that morning. He said nothing. His wife and his children kept silent. Now, I'm not sure if they thought they were going to get away with it or that God would overlook their sin or if they were simply uh, just so prideful or just in fear. In any case, God gave them a chance to confess and repent. But Achan refused And this refusal will cost him and his family dearly, just as I'm here to tell you, friends, that our sin will cost us dearly if we do not confess and repent. If we do not have our sin atoned for, the price is death. Now, I do want to spend some time on two other big pictures that you and I sometimes can miss in this event. Themes that are woven in this story. Now, the first picture is that of corporate guilt due to one man's sin and the atonement for sin. This is a a picture of the redemption theme of the Bible as we think of the corporate guilt due to one man's sin and the atonement. It is very clear from verse 1 in Joshua 7 that God held the whole nation as responsible. It was Joshua and the nation's duty to ensure that God's word was obeyed. Their their failure to do so cost them 36 men and a devastating failure in battle. Their sin led them to fear and to doubt God. And let me tell you, that's one of the things of the consequences of sin. It will cause you to fear and doubt God. Now, this corporate guilt or the many that were counted sinful due to the sinful actions of one, of Achan, is also shown in Genesis chapter 3. It is Adam's failure to keep and protect the garden, allowing Satan to enter and tempt Eve, that led to the whole human race to fall victim to the curse of sin and death. In Romans 5.12, we read that just as sin came into the world through one man, And death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So in other words, just as Achan's sin led to all being guilty, Adam's one sin led all of us to be guilty as well. You see, Adam served as our head. There's a theological term called the federal head, but he served as our representative. And because he rebelled against God as our representative, We have all been counted as guilty. 
Now, this seems harsh, especially for us today in America, where we believe that every man should be judged by his own character and his own actions. Well, at least we once believed that. Yet this was God's righteous, just, and wise plan. One man would stand for us and show us whether we would be guilty or accepted by God in the garden. Now, before we join Joshua in complaining about God's plan, that I deserve hell because of Adam's sin, we should also consider the remedy for our corporate sin and guilt. See, and that's what's wonderful, is that God not only declared us guilty, but he also gives us a remedy for that problem. And that is Jesus Christ. For scripture goes on to tell us, as you see here on the monitor in Romans 5, 17, for if because of one man's trespass, Adam, death reigned through that one man. So all of the sons and daughters of Adam then become guilty. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Christ Jesus. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all, one, all men, look at this, here's the, here's the great exchange So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. In other words, we are declared righteous because of one man's righteous. Many times we make the sake of of saying justification means that I am right with God or I've been made right. Uh, That's not a a very good uh, phrase for it. It's more that we've been declared right. Because in one man, we were declared guilty. By one man, we declared righteous. That's so important. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So God remedies the situation. Adam is our head, but so is Jesus Christ. Amen. And because of one man's disobedience, we have one man's obedience. In Joshua 7, Achan and his family bore the brunt of God's anger and their death along with Israel's obedience to that command and to that command satisfied God's wrath and atoned. So you're seeing the gospel taking place. This picture, Jesus' death on the cross, just as Adam stood as a representative, so did Christ. He was our substitute as he bore the wrath of God. So because of Achan's sin, the many had to suffer, but yet also because the Israel then turned and put, put the wrath of God on Achan and his family, the rest of Israel was redeemed and restored. It was the death of Christ, you see, that satisfied the wrath of God and brought our redemption and reconciled us back to God. It was the death of Achan and his family that reconciled them back to God and satisfied God's anger. Even though Joshua and the corporate body were not policing Achan and his family. Here in the book of Joshua, the Old Testament presents the gospel already. And it points forward to God's plan for Jesus to provide all that God requires. As you and I read in Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. You see, sin comes at a very high price, and that price is death. So the first thing you see in in, in chapter 7 is you see the gospel once again. Your understanding is pointing forward to understanding what corporate guilt is, but also but what, what, that, what then the remedy, the, 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 uh, the repent, or not the repentance, but how God is going to redeem us for that. 
The second picture is the one I really want to stand because I believe that most of you know Christ. If you do not know Christ, then I beg you today to come to him. You're never, uh, you, it's time to do so. You're, you're at the age where you can recognize that you need a savior and that we're born in sin. So I, I pray if, if you do not know Christ, then come to him today. One of the elders, we'd love to show with you how you too can know that you have Jesus Christ, that he has satisfied the wrath of God for you. But the second picture is the one I want to go because I believe mainly we're we're believers here today. And that second picture that you and I are going to see is the progress of uh, progress or the cycle of sin. It's not like Achan got up in the morning of the battle of Jericho and planned on disobeying, disregarding, and denying the word of God. At least we're given no indication that he was. It seems by all accounts given that Achan was just a regular man ready to do battle for God, his nation, and his family. He was probably excited, nervous, and anxious to see what what the Lord would do on that seventh day at Jericho. And when the walls came crumbling down, he was probably just as surprised as everyone else. And when the shout, with the shout of the priests and the blowing of the horns, he rushed into battle to do what he was supposed to do, and that was to exterminate the enemy. Yet think of this. Put this picture in your mind. Yet as he's moving his way through the rocks and he's doing his duty as a warrior, as he makes his way through the city, we see that something happens that will lead him to treason against his creator, against God and his nation. Look back with me at Joshua chapter 7, verse 20. And you're going to want to underline some phrases here. This is Achan speaking. And he says, when I saw, underline that, among the spoil, a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them. Do you see each one is going to be referenced by an I? I coveted them and took them. And they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Right in that phrase, verse 20, or was it verse 20? It's verse 21, I'm sorry. Here we see the progress or the cycle of sin that exposes the treachery of his heart. You see, he saw, he coveted, he took, and he hid. That's the cycle of sin. I saw leads to I coveted, leads to taking, leads to hiding. That's the cycle of sin, not only for, for Achan, but for all of us. We see that Achan's heart, his affection, his mind, his will, and his choice leads him to disregard and disobey God's command. I I saw, I coveted his affections, his mind, and his choice I took. His heart was not pure before God. It was not wholly devoted to God. This is a cycle of sin for each and every one of us. This pattern also seen several other times in scripture. I think you'll see it here on the, ma- on, the, on the monitor. Look, Adam and Eve, she saw that the tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. She took of its fruit. And what did they do? They hid themselves. Achan, I saw, I coveted, I took. I hid David with Bathsheba. 
I saw the woman bathing. The woman was beautiful. I coveted. She was a light to my eyes. I sent messengers and I took her. And then he tried to hide his sin by murdering her husband. Let me tell you, the cycle of sin. Can you go back to the back one one more time, Ben? I should have put that on there again. This is your life. This is what happens to you every moment of the day. You get up. You're ready to go to work. You might read your scripture, maybe listen to worship music. You're on your way, ready to conquer the day for the Lord. All of a sudden you see. Then all of a sudden you covet. Eventually you take and then you hide. I always tell the men, it's called the second glance. For men, we're riding down the road, things are going well, and we see a young lady jogging or walking. We see. Now, there's many things that you can't help but see, right? You're on the TV, you're on the computer. It comes quickly. It's not the first glance that gets you in trouble. It's the second glance. It's, a, oh, wow, wow, or here or there. Now, women, you're just as guilty of this, by the way. Actually, pornography is actually growing among women faster than it is with men, believe it or not. But we see. We then desire it. We then build ourselves to make a choice to take it. And as always, we then try to hide our sin. Sin always begins with desire. Many times, seeing is not not our issue. And so we're going through our day, and before we know it, we're just in this cycle all day. I'm seeing, I'm coveting, I tilt, I hide. And this is the battle. We're breaking faith with God. That's what we're doing. We're as guilty of the sin of David and Achan and his Adam as anyone else because we suffer from this every day. This is the sanctification process. This is the process that God actually uses to make us more like him. Now that seems kind of uh, different, right? But this is the process. And he wants us to break this cycle, to be aware of it, so that we can understand that it's affecting our heart. Sin always begins with desire. God warns Cain in Genesis 4, 7. If you do well, Cain, will you not be accepted? Remember, God did not accept his sacrifice for one reason or another. So Cain is angry. He says, and if you do not do well, he says, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So look at, gentlemen, women, this, this, this right here, young people, this cycle is in your life. Picture right now that any door that you might come to, there is a roaring lion seeking to jump at you as soon as you open it. And it wants to devour you. It wants to crush you. Its desire is to rule over you. But what does he say? You must rule over it. So you must rule over your hearts. That's why he says in Philippians 4.8, whatsoever is lovely, good, pure, just, if there's any good report, any praise, think on these things. Guard your heart, for from it is the wellspring of life. If your wellspring is bad, then, then everything else will be bad. 
In James chapter 1, verse 14 and 16, we learn that each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desires, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived. Please, that's what I'm begging you this morning. Please, brothers and sisters in Christ, do not be deceived by what, what Satan does to hear. This desire is called covetousness. And you can go ahead, Ben, and go on forward. Thank you. In Exodus 20, 17, as we go to the next slide, we learn that the 10th commandment concerns covetousness. He says, thou shalt not covet your neighbor's house and never covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, his female servant, or his ox or his donkey or anything that is, is, that is your neighbor's. Turn to James chapter 4, if you would please. God is warning us about covetousness. It is to break the 10th commandment. Its desire is to rule over us. Covetousness is defined as a desire or to take pleasure in something or to delight in. It can be an object. It can be a person. It can be an ideal. I think today many people are, are, are tempted by ideals. Social justice or, or purity or, or some things of uh, that nature that can be, uh, lead us to wrong desires. It's closely related to idolatry, which Theopedia defines as the pain of divine honor to any created thing or the ascription of divine power to natural agencies. In other words, this causes us to covet, to worship. To covet something is actually to worship it. Causes to worship what you do not have. Look at James chapter 4, verse 1. He says, what causes the quarrels? What causes the fights among you? Now, he, he's speaking here to Christians. So what's causing quarrels and fights in the assembly, in the church of God, in the gathering of God's people? Now, we can extrapolate this because this is the same thing with the world. He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You are seeing, you are coveting, you are taking, you are hiding. Your desire, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. The covet is to desire something that God has not. Listen to this. Get this down. To covet is to desire something that God has chosen not to give you. At this moment, at this time, to covet is to desire something that God has not given you. It could be a house, it could be a car, it could be a relationship, it could be a person, it could be an ideal, it could be anything. Instead of envy and jealousy for what our neighbors possess, you and I have been called to trust that God will supply all our needs according to his riches. So instead of those, this is the breaking of the faith. Instead of trusting in that, listen to this, we steal from God. Just as Achan did. That's what it is. We're stealing from God. God knows what we need and he is faithful to provide it. This is how Adam and Eve and King David and Achan broke faith. Now again, going here to the monitor, you've seen my definition of faith before. If faith is a confident trust in the promises of God, and that's what I believe it is, 
then sin can be defined as being unsatisfied with the promises and provisions of God. So when you and I see, when we covet, when we, when we, when we take and when we hide, we are saying, I am unsatisfied with the promises and provision of God. When a man is, is stuck with pornography, he's saying, I'm unsatisfied with the woman, the wife that God has given to me. When, when, I, when I'm coveting someone else's house or I'm coveting their, their pay scale or whatever, I'm unsatisfied with God's promise and provision to take care of me. That, that's what covetousness is. That's what sin is. So my question for you in this progress and cycle of sin that you are struggling with, for most of us usually have a handful of things that really just drag us down. In what ways, in what things are you unsatisfied with God? Why are you unsatisfied with the way God has promised and provided for you? That's what sin is. Even when we get angry at our children, mad at our spouse, flip the person off that cut us off in traffic. I'm unsatisfied with the promises and provision of God. So now I know as believers, we do not want to have that type of attitude, right? We, we don't want to break faith. We want to be confident and trusting in the promises and provision of God. We need to recognize that cycle. And we need to break it in our own lives. In essence, we are saying when we do this that God is not good, that he is not just, that he is not righteous, and God is not faithful. That's Joshua's complaint. We complain that we were better off without him. That we can just do it on our own. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, we learn this. I believe it's on the monitor. Do not love the world nor the things that are in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the looking, the desires of the eyes, the coveting, the pride of life, I'm taking what I want, is not from the Father, but is from where? The world. That is the world's attitude. That's how they get. That's why there's quarrels. That is why there is fighting. But God has called us to something much different. Instead, we are called to keep faith in loving God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, and all of our strength. We need to break that cycle. And to do that, we must be aware of this progression and break the cycle of sin in our own hearts as individuals. And, get this please, as committed covenant body of believers. Adam failed to protect and keep his wife in the garden. He allowed the serpent in there. He sat there while Eve was tempted. He allowed it. Joshua and the nation, and even Achan's family, allowed Achan to sin. They did not protect and keep. They should have in some way made sure that that was not brought into the camp. Your life, your struggling bearing the consequences of sin in your mind, in your mind, your body, in your finances, in your relationship, because you're not protecting and keeping. So we are to do that as individuals with our heart, our affections, our mind, 
and our choices, our will. But let me tell you, we are to do that as a body of believers. That's why we're called together. Is that we're here to bear one another's burdens. We are to call one another out. We are not to let sin in the body. Uh, Paul goes on this in 1 Corinthians. Together, we can protect and keep our hearts focused on God. It's why we encourage you to become a member. We're gonna, hopefully, I'll have a members class in August, September. As we come together and we're asking you to come together, consecrate and present yourself before us so that we may hold one another accountable. So that the progression of sin does not come in and affect the body and yourself. So let me go to the application. You and I can break the progression and cycle of sin by three things. It can be broken. It, it, it may not be eradicated. Well, it will not be eradicated in this life. We are living in the, in the presence of sin. One day, salvation includes the deliverance of the presence of sin. So that cycle, we just need to break it. We need to keep it from going on. We need to be stronger in, in dealing with this sin. Here's the three things. Confession and repentance of sin. To confess sin is more than just admit that you've made an error of judgment or that you have hang-ups or that you struggle with bad habits. That, that's, that, that church is now, that, you have a bad habit, you have a hang-up, let's just call it sin, okay? To confess means that we agree with God that of the hideous nature of our sin and that it's against God that we sin again. David says it is against sin or it's, it's against God and only God that I have sinned. It's to recognize and agree that sin is what God has called it. Not what you and I call it. Sin is a treacherous act against a holy, righteous king. And you must recognize that. Even the little sins that you have, and we'll talk more about that as we go through Joshua, those are treacherous sins that cost the death of Christ and affects your life. Repentance is more than just being sorry that you got caught or mournful of the consequences of our sin. And that's typically what we are. Paul warns in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, uh, 7, verse 10, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. However, he goes on, worldly grief produces death. That's the worldly grief that says, man, I'm just sorry I got caught. I'm sorry of the consequences. I'm sorry this cost me my marriage. I'm sorry this cost me uh, my, my, my uh, reputation. But a godly grief leads to repentance. It leads to say that I understand what I did is against God and God forgive me for that. And it's a turning away. You've heard that phrase before. It's a turning of 180 degrees and walking the opposite way. So you and I must adopt the, the, the practice, the spiritual habit of confession and repentance. Repentance is more than just a one-time event. It is a lifetime confession. He calls us to confess our sins to one another. Number two. This is going on a little bit of last week, but we need to put death to, or we need to put sin to death. We must eradicate sin in our own hearts. If you're taking notes, it's putting sin to death. We must eradicate sins in our heart. Jesus taught in Matthew 5:30 that if your right hand caused you to sin, do what? 
cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body goes into hell. Men, women, some of us need to get rid of our Twitter accounts, our Facebook accounts, Instagram. We may have to get rid of a computer, a tablet. We may have to get rid of the phone. We may have to to get rid of our Netflix, our Hulu, whatever it is that's causing you to see, to covet, to take, and to hide. No matter what the cost. Now, this is not talking about self-harm. Please do not do that. But you may need to get rid of whatever it is that's causing you that you are not able to control. Whatever it is that's causing you to covet, to desire that which is not yours. Paul warned that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, meaning that we cannot play with sin or allow it into our lives, family, or church. Too many times we think, well, we can just have this one little sin. But Achan's sin led to consequences for the nation. It led to consequences for him and his family. Do not think that you are immune to sin's consequences or that God is not aware of your sin. In Psalms 44, verse 21, we are warned that God knows the secrets of your heart. There is no hiding from them. We think of the folly of of Adam and Eve sewing fig leaves together and hiding from the presence of God in the garden. We think of Achan trying to hide from God, knowing that the next day uh, judgment was coming. Or how about David at the height of his glory, hiding it that he had murdered uh, Uriah and that he had slept and taken his wife. There is no hiding from God. Where can I go to get away from God's presence? You say, well, I've sinned quite a bit and God hasn't done anything for me. Well, Don't misjudge his his kindness, his restraint, as forbearance, as okay, it's all right. No, his judgment will come. We must adopt the attitude of J.C. Ryle, who said in this cartoon on the monitor, he says, a true Christian is one who has not only peace of conscience, but war within, that seems odd. Uh, Don't I have peace, but yet we're also called to war. He may be known by his warfare as well as by his peace. And I'm not sure if you're able to see that, but he's battling against sin. Sin is crouching at its door and its desire is for you. You and I need our battle gear together and ready to fight sin. As I said last week, be killing sin or sin will what? Be killing you. Number three, pray for the help of the Trinity. I think instead of saying, God, we should call Trinity. Trinity is who he is. And I say Trinity because all three persons of the Godhead are active in our Christian life in breaking this cycle of sin in our sanctification where we become freer and freer of sin and more like Christ. Scripture calls us to pray to the Father in Matthew chapter 6, forgive our debts, right? Forgive us our sins as we have also forgiven our debtors. And then he says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. When you get up in the morning, your first prayer should be, Lord, lead me not in temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. Help me as I drive around the road to to, to safely keep my eyes where they should be. Keep me from the second glance. And that second glance can be anything. It's that desire to covet. That's the second glance. It's the dwelling on. It's the taking the light of. Lord, lead me not in temptation. 
And you say, the Lord leads us in temptation. Yeah, temptation is not of God, but he leads us into us. Temptation is part of his pruning work in our hearts. So there must be, say, Lord, it's right now, it's very difficult for me. I am having a hard time escaping, the finding the way out. Can you just not leave me in temptation today? Would you just strengthen me, send your angels to minister to me? Deliver me from the evil one when he comes. Help me to break that cycle. So that, that's the work of the Father. In Hebrews 4, 14-16, we are encouraged by the highly priestly work of Christ. Look what he says here. I think, do I have that then? Yes. For uh, Okay, so we have a little bit different thing here. Go ahead and hold that there. He says, since we, do not, since we have a, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, he says, let us hold fast to our confession and then to the monitor. He says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Jesus sympathized with what you're going through. He looks at you with favor but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are in his heart through, through, through the outward pressures, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. We can't wait for God to call us down. We need to go to him for he understands that progression of sin. And what I didn't give you here, but here's the great thing. You've heard me say it before. Jesus prays for you by name. He goes before the Father and he prays for you. Go to the Christ. And then in Romans 8, 13, we read that the Holy Spirit works in our lives to make us more like Christ. That's the work of the Spirit. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Live by the Spirit. Let Him guide you. Let Him do that work in your life. How do we do that? We put on, we put off, and we yield. Once again, as we consider and close here in Joshua 7, let us rejoice that the gospel is presented even in Joshua chapter 7. You see the gospel. With the warning and the encouragement that you and I need to break the progression and cycle of sin in our lives. As believers, let us not break faith. Let me close with the Valley of the Vision. It's a, it's a prayer book. I, I encourage any of you, if you haven't got the Valley of Vision, buy the book, get it on, on, on Kindle. It is a, it's a great way to pray, by the way. I think there's several of us that use it. In the prayer called conflict, this was my prayer this week. Again, why God does this, but he does it all the time. One of those prayers will, will, will just catch what I'm preaching on. And the Puritan prays this, give me abhorrence of all evil as a vile monster that defies thy law. Cast off thy yoke, defiles my nature, spreads misery. May we see sin that desire to have what God has not chosen to give us at this particular moment in time as that which is vile, a monster that destroys us. May we glorify God in keeping faith. With every head bowed, every head closed, I'm going to ask, uh, Landon has our prayer, pastor's prayer and also the worship team. And we'll close in our last song. 
I just want to encourage you. I know this sometimes going through Joshua in the Old Testament can be tough. But I believe there's so much in the gospel there that's encouraging even as we read it and we see what God is doing. So I want you to take a moment just to pause and then consider what we've spoken here today. Take time to go over your notes later. Maybe read through the chapter again. Maybe listen to the message again, whether it's on Facebook or our YouTube channel or the podcast that we have. You can get all of that from our website and elsewhere. Maybe go over it, share it with a friend. Would you consider what God has for you? That he wants to give you victory. He wants to reconcile us back to himself and lead us to the victory that he's promised. And may we respond to the Spirit's work. May God bless us. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.